It's a pleasure to welcome Niall Quinn to our podcast today. Niall, welcome. Thanks very much, yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate your time. Niall, obviously we, we brought you on initially to talk about the League of Ireland and the streaming service that's come out, which is fantastic. And it's akin to the GAA and what they've done. And with the Irish, the sporter over here, they've taken to that. So we just want to talk a little bit more about the League of Ireland and the streaming service and what's happening in the background. Sure, yeah. So I would have always had a, a, a feeling that the League of Ireland wasn't doing itself justice. It was um, trundling along. And we don't need to go too deep into the old FAI regime and how the League of Ireland wasn't considered as um, important as perhaps it should have been. And so when we were in the door, Gary Owens and I, you know, we very quickly looked at the potential of bringing games to people around the world or people in Ireland who couldn't get to games. Everybody else was doing it. You know, why couldn't we? And it was shot down a little bit. We, we found there was a negativity in the air when we first started talking about it. The league started. The first few games were real sort of positive. Everything went very well. You'll remember uh, Flores' goal up in uh, Milltown for Dundalk against Shamrock Rovers will probably win goal of the season in Europe, never mind Ireland. And so we were saying, you know, when that goal was scored, uh, five million people around Europe watched it in about 72 hours. And we said, hey, you know something, there are people out there, they just need to be tapped in and switched into uh, what's happening here. So we persevered and, you know, met a bit of ridicule, I would say, uh, from within the game and carried on with it. And we did, did really well, actually, to get an introduction to the GAA Go people and indeed the GAA, who were very helpful in saying how they had come onto this and how they were bringing it all together and they worked with us all the way through. So we started to investigate it early on in COVID and by the time we came out and got ready to play, thankfully we'd agreed a position. There was a number of people, you know, once publicly it became known we were looking at this, there were a number of companies who, who came and knocking on our door and it was good to know that, you know, people thought that we had a proposition that people might pay for and uh, we had a lot of work to do on it but um, the ultimate aim was to show League of Ireland football around the world, R&D parts of Ireland to, to people who would appreciate it. But it also had to be, you know, a, a decent show. It was going to cost money. Money is tight. As you know, in the middle of COVID-19, we had a choice whether to abandon it when we knew the league was coming back or would we use it and learn from this shortened league time and maybe be able to do something much better next year and, year, and following years after that. So it was a, an expense that, some of the clubs would have preferred to have that been dished out to them. I've no doubt about that if you were to break it up and divide it equally amongst the clubs. But we persevered and, and ploughed the, the, the furrow on, on the basis that we learn so much about this. I'm looking really pleased to say, I don't have the numbers here in front of me, and I'm, I'm actually, I think technically I'm not allowed to do that um, until a certain date. But uh, we're delighted that it's, A, it's a good product. B, people all over the world are looking at it. And see, it will more than pay for itself. We know that for a fact now. So um, so that's made it worthwhile. And the learnings of it are, are, are important too. You know, it's great to be able to say we, we've done it. We're looking at it. But it's how you build on it and how we market it and how we get even better exposure as we go to put a fuller program in place for next season. I think that's the exciting bit. So, you know, it's like, I suppose, the first few fences in the Grand National, we've jumped them and the horse is going well, but it's it's more jumps to jump in the future. And it's great, you know, learning from what the GAA Go guys have done and putting best practices in place. And it will also open up employment opportunities for commentators, etc., uh, analysis, ex-players, what have you. And it brings great interest to a wider audience. So all positive and delighted that we overcame the, uh, the initial ridicule that was hitting us quite hard from within the game. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to hand it over to Gary now, who will take it from here. Niall, he has some questions for you. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, first one up, Niall, doing a bit of research on this here, and uh, I couldn't believe this quote from uh, Malcolm McDonald whenever you went on trial to Fulham. <laughs> when you were 15 years of fifteen years of age, he said, where there's a hole in your backside, you will never make it as a footballer. Yeah, uh, it's just so yeah. very, I, I mean, maybe it sums up that generation of coaching, but uh, I mean, it's just so harsh. How, how did you deal with that as a, as a young 15-year-old? Well, I, when, I, when I was under 14, I, I won a 
Player of the Month for the Dublin Schoolboys League. And the prize was to go to a coaching session with Malcolm McDonald and Frank Stapleton. And it was a great thrill. We went up to UCD. Do you remember McVitie's? They used to be biscuits. Yeah, the biscuits, yeah. Yeah, so McVitie's had this coaching course and Malcolm McDonald and um, Frank Stapleton came and they, they were teaching us for two days and it was brilliant, you know. And I must have made some kind of impact on him then because shortly afterwards I got a letter inviting me to Fulham on trial. And I was thrilled, you know, and I'd never really fancy, I love playing football, but I didn't dare dream that I'd end up on trial in England. And it came about in such an unusual way because my team wouldn't have been in the in the A-Leagues that I was playing with. So I went off on trial and uh, as a young lad, I was 15 and I stayed with my auntie and uncle in Twickenham. I got the train in to Putney every, every morning. I remember it clear as day. I was in an hour and a half before I should. Oh, this is wonderful, the great world of professional football. They were top of the championship at the time, what we call the championship now. And they were about nine points clear with two points a win. And they looked destined to be going back to the what we now call the Premier League. And the place was buzzing. But when I look back, it was incredible, the, the lack of facilities. Like We used to go to the local park to train. And all of a sudden, there'd be like a sketch because the park ranger would be coming in and everyone would be picking up bollards and bibs and running, and running to the next public park. And we'd carry on the session at the next public park. It was it was amazing. I, I really uh, didn't stop to think about it. I was in awe because I was in and around footballers. And, you know, Ray Houghton was there as a oh, scene. Wow. So, um, you know, there was uh, Gary Payton, who I later played. So there's two players who were, who were there. And um, it was an incredible time. Tony Gale went on to West Ham. He was there. There was, you know, I remember them all as clear as day. But the trial itself, sorry, to get to the point, the trial itself, um, I, I did okay running from park to park and in the sessions, but they had two matches and they put me in the reserves for two games. And I was 15 playing centre half, so I wasn't a striker then. And in my first game against Charlton, I, I did all right. I struggled, but it was fine. And I thought I'd be better for the second game. But we played QPR in the second game and QPR reserves beat us 5-0. Clive Allen was coming back from injury and scored the five goals and I was meant to be marking him at 15 years of age. So I think when it, when it came to, you know, the, the decisions to be made on me, you know the cottage there at, old, uh, at uh, Craven Cottage? Craven by cottage the yeah. That was Malcolm McDonald's office upstairs and I was told to go up and see him and I went in to see him and he handed me a signed football by all the players and he said to me, you're a bright lad, you're not for the world of football. In fact, I'd like to give it to you as a man, man to man. He actually said I'm a misogynist by nature, which I hadn't a clue what it even meant, right? 15 years of age, I was going, all right. But I want to give you this news like a man and it'll be, you'll be all the better for it. And I went grand, hit me. And uh, that's when he said, as long as you have a hole in your backside, you're not going to be a professional footballer. <laughs> so some would argue to this day that he had a point, but um, you know, it didn't. I wasn't offended. I came out. I was glad. I had a signed football from the likes of Ray Houghton and Harry uh, Payton and others. Gordon Davies was the centre forward. He was the guy who scored all the goals. Um, Paul uh, oh, Paul Parker was there. Yeah. Yeah. Who went on to fame at Man United? But anyway, I headed back on the plane and joined the local hurling team. <laughs> <laughs> and. Football took a little bit of a backseat. Hurling became my, my passion then. And it was only when I moved to Lord Celtic, who were a year older than me, who were in the A-Leagues, um, about, about six months later, or eight months later, that I, I got back into it. It was a great coach there, two great coaches, Murray Price and Barrow Bradley. And they really got me at it. And it was a different kind of team. Like, I was with this lovely team up in the posh end of Perrystown, where all our parents had two cars and would come and support us at every match. And then suddenly I was playing under 17 football and we were waiting for guys who'd been in the barracks overnight, arrested, and we were collecting them in a minibus that the local priest was driving, bringing us to matches around housing estates, collecting lads. They were tougher. They were, they were, it was better for me, you know. It kind of woke me up and toughened me up and, and um, I got great uh, belief in myself playing with Lord Celtic. But... Where did that all end up? Um, did Lord Celtic then get me off to England? No. I played in a schools final in Tolka Park because a hurling match, a very important hurling match, was cancelled. And the Arsenal, it was against Ballymun Comprehensive. I was playing for uh, Drimna Castle. 
and the Arsenal scout came to watch the centre-forward of Ballymun comprehensive. And I had the better day. I scored two goals. We won the Leinster College's trophy. I missed my Ireland match, which would have come first, no doubt. It was, you know, I was picked for the Dublin under 70s, I think. And, um, and I ended up, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know. That was in May. But he never came to me until I'd finished the hurling that September because I was on the Dublin, it was actually a Dublin minor hurling team. And we, we went kind of all the way to uh, the All-Ireland final that year. So I was training hurling four nights a week. My season finished with Lord Celtic. We lost the Pepsi-Cola Cup final to Home Farm. And that, that, you know, that was terrible on penalties. It was an under-18 competition. I was an under-16 player. Um, and, and I was playing really well. I was up to a good standard at that point, but hurling was the main thing. And literally, we lost the All-Ireland final on the 5th or 6th of September. And on the Tuesday night, Bill Darby, the scout, called on, on our door and said, you'll be fit enough. I want you to go over to Arsenal this week and go on trial. But I don't want you as a, as a centre-back. I want you to go as a centre-forward. I remember I didn't get the Irish schoolboy team, went for all those trials, you know, and I was at this stage, I was kind of saying, have I missed the boat? But you look, I'm fit, I'll go over. And I hadn't played a competitive soccer match since the May. And I went over and I got a lucky break in, 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 in that I arrived there. All the younger players had been allowed home for their first week at home since the summer. So there was nobody left for me to train with except the reserves and the senior pros. So straight away, I was thrown in with the, with the bigger guys. I did all right. I wasn't nervous, but I was a little bit nervous when, you know, when you're, when you're knocking the ball around in the first training session with Pat Jennings and Dave O'Leary, these you know, stalwarts of the game. Uh, Graham Ricks, Charlie Nicholas, who was such a star at the time, Tony Woodcock, Paul Mariner, you know, the list is, is endless. And uh, I didn't feel nervous. I was just thrilled to be there and treated it as another adventure. You know, I'd already been tipped off about my ability by Malcolm McDonald. So I wasn't getting hung up over it. And, uh, and it went really well. And, and we played the same thing. I played a couple of reserve matches, only I played really well, scored a couple of goals in one and did very well in the other. And then we played a... My third game that I played in that trial was for an under-18 match against South Hall. And I was put up front with a young trialist called Paul Merson. And we won 9-0. Paul got six and I got three. And we, he came off the pitch and Paul, as you probably know, was into betting and everything that consumes him is around betting. And I his, his expression to me coming off the pitch, he went, we're 100 to one on, mate, to get a contract. <laughs> And I don't know what he meant. <laughs> but both of us got the professional contract and I came home to tell the Christian brothers that I was leaving school and two weeks later I was in Arsenal cleaning boots, living the dream. Brilliant, brilliant. Put, putting yourself on the other end of that there because um, when we put this up that I was interviewing, Richie Ryan reached out to me. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I he Richie said, well, yeah. Yeah, he said, when I was at Sunderland, when I was a young player at Sunderland, Niall really look after all the young pros. Was that something that just naturally your personality or is that something that when you were in their shoes, you realised how tough it was? Well, there's a bit of that, but it was also encouraged by Peter Reid, the manager. You know, I was able to do things like uh, go into Peter Reid and say, Peter, we've about 12 Irish lads here in the underage ranks. You know, the, the crop of, of, sort of the Irish schoolboy system was almost coming to us on trial every month or two. And, and we had great contacts, obviously. And, and so we ended up with lots of players like Richie, Cliffy Byrne, Tommy Butler. There was Brendan McGill. There was so many of them. And uh, I remember it got to the point one where, where you know Peter was saying, you know, make sure they're all okay. You know, make sure they're they're, they're happy. So I took that as a license, kind of to to do things. You know, bring them out and give them the odd sort of shandy or two to make sure that they weren't totally, uh, I suppose, downtrodden by this football life. And um, one of the things we did, one of the most memorable things, was we, we had a a Gaelic football game against the university. There was in Newcastle, they had a Gaelic football team. And so all of our young players, all of our Irish players came together to take them on. And we didn't quite have enough. So we ended up getting one or two others to come and play. So we had a, we had a lad, Greg, a goalkeeper from Belfast and George McCartney, you know, they were saying, you know, we can't do this. We'll get lynched when we go home if they find out we played a Gaelic match. You know, But eventually we, we convinced them to line up and um, a bit like Ireland in the old days play under an assumed name you know and uh, it was very funny because in the first few minutes the Newcastle team uh, got a, a free in from the 14 yard line and um, our goalkeeper Greg from Belfast started shouting for a four man wall you know so it was, 
it was one of those days and um, look it was a brilliant thing to do and all the players then we went to an Irish bar afterwards and they met all the people in the university and suddenly they all made friends in the university and they had something extra in their lives in the northeast of England as opposed to just going back to the digs playing football cleaning boots whatever a bit of education not much um, and so we broke it up that way and we had a lovely buzz going with, with all of the northeast kids as well and every other kid that was there we played head tennis every day after training and you know in some clubs the first team don't even train in the same complex as the young kids. But what we did after training every day, we made first team players stay behind, join up with one or two of the younger lads and play head tennis against each other. Maybe a five or the pro would pay the money and the, uh, the young player would win if his team won. And we built this up over a period of time. And uh, Peter Reid loved it. He really encouraged it. And Richie would have played it many times. So many of the young players would have done it. And then the first day Howard Wilson came in, we were all up at the training ground and he literally walked into the training ground. We're all there playing this head tennis, it was late in the afternoon, and he just gave a big shout to the groundsman and went, get these out of here now, get these nets, this isn't football. And uh, that was the end of my influence on the young Irish lads. Wow. St- sticking on Peter Reid then, uh, someone that fascinated me, because that early 90s, he was taking Sunderland, at, like I'm guessing fifth or sixth Premier League, maybe even fourth years were up to. Like, how did he do it? What was so, yeah. what was so special about his management? Well, he, he, he joined in 95 and kept them up. And maybe 95, 96 season, he kept them up. And then he bought me in the August. And I was at the record signing at 1.3 million. Now, I'd had a cruciate two years earlier. And Man City had probably said that I was a risk to them now. I was past it because it was much more difficult to get over a cruciate in them days. And I was allowed to go to Sunderland. And Peter was great. I had no other club come in for me, bar a team in Malaysia. So I was really struggling and Peter came in and paid all that money for me and I repaid him by doing the other cruciate five games in. <laughs> so I was record signing and I was gone. I tried to come back for the last few matches and I did. I came back and played um, as best I could, but I, I wasn't right. Uh, we got relegated. Uh, it was our last year in the Stadium of Light. We then moved into the, sorry, our last year in Roker Park and then we moved into the Stadium of Light as a relegated team and I wasn't really ready you know, my knee wasn't correct. There was still problems with it. And after six or seven games that season, I was all set to jack it in because um, I was just struggling too much. And Peter was really good. He, he got me to go to a new guy in Bradford because I'd had two really good operations and, and, and they're still great to this day. There was something wrong. And um, Mr. Bolland in Bradford, I'll never forget, he had the uh, registration plate on his car, ACL1. <laughs> So uh, I thought I was encouraged by that. This guy is confident. And he went in. I went in to see him. And overnight, he uh, he, he diagnosed a problem. Next day, he, he got rid of it for me. And then I started to rebuild my career. Sunderland started to do well. We just missed out on promotion that year in the playoffs with Charlton in, in an epic playoff final against Charlton that we lost in penalties, 7-6. But the, the seeds were sown. We knew we were a good team. If we all stayed together, that the next year, we, we'd, we'd get into the Premier League. And we, we had it won by March. And we broke the record. We got 105 points. It would have been 120 had we not gone celebrating from March onwards every night of the week. We were at the Durham branch, the Mar- the Markham branch, the Newcastle and the Lyme branch. We were all at dues every night of the week. And we, were, we, we spent two months celebrating. And in those two months, we dropped points that would have been our, nobody would have beaten our record, you know. But it was great because we, we'd stuck together. Um, there wasn't many new signings, anything like that. And we came into the Premier League full of confidence. And the first day, we got an absolute battering and a lesson from Chelsea. And, you know, Phil Brown, when he brought all the players into the box and started pointing at them. Well, Bobby Saxon, our coach, did that. But he did it, in fairness, 45 minutes after the final whistle and brought us all out into the centre circle. And it was the most incredible team talk I've ever heard or will ever hear. And the turnaround was, was so complete that by early December, we played and beat them four at home. And they'd World Cup winners playing that day. And we went second in the Premier League for Christmas. And that was a great time. Now, all Sunderland fans will remember it because we had a fellow called Kevin Phillips who was just popping up, scoring goals from everywhere. And to give you a measure of how good an achievement it was and what, what he did for that football club, he's the only Englishman since before, since or after to have won the European Golden Boot. And he won it playing for Sunderland. Now, that, that takes some doing. You know, we weren't winning 5-0 every week. 
But as happened that season and has happened the season afterwards, we got tired after Christmas. We were second, you know, second in around second place in the Premier League at the turn of the year, both years. But we faded to seventh both times. And uh, looking back, you know, what you know now about squad rotation, etc. You know, maybe if they had five or six players to come in that they trusted to come in and give us all a rest. But in them days, you got appearance money and bonus money and you'd be devastated if you didn't get some of that. So you'd hide injuries to play matches, you know. Um, it's different to how it is today. But uh, look, it was a great time. And Peter just trusted me, you know, anytime the players went out on a social occasion, he'd come to me and he'd go, just make sure they all get home. Nobody gets in trouble. Now, I didn't succeed all the time, <laughs> but uh, I got into a bit of trouble myself. But, uh, but they were great days, and like I remember them as if they were yesterday. We talked a little bit about uh, business before we started recording and, and your ventures in there. Uh, when, and we're kicking the pod, or the interview off about the streaming and growing a project there. And when we're talking about Sunderland, so to put all that together and we look at the Netflix series, I wanted mm-hmm. to get your thought, like from a, I suppose from a business perspective or from an upper-level management in, the, in a football club, do you think that's a good move for a club to do or, or do you think maybe it can harm the brand, do more harm than good? Well, I think Sunderland has gone so low that it was good to get Sunderland's brand out there in any shape or form, good, bad or indifferent. And, and the Netflix series, you know, it's phenomenal. The first one, I was kind of reluctant to you know whether I wanted to watch it or not. And it was last Christmas, Christmas before last, so it would have been, what, 18 months ago? Or maybe it was Christmas just gone, I can't remember. But we sat down one of the Christmas days when we had nothing to do in our pyjamas and watched one early in the morning. And we, and myself and my wife sat through the whole series. We watched all eight. I was enthralled by it. It was the year, you know, the, the year that um, they were getting relegated from the championship. And it was incredible. I, I was absolutely infatuated by it all, even though I was reluctant, didn't think it would be good. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So when the second one came around, I strapped myself in and 15 minutes in, I switched it off, to be honest with you. Um, I had an objection to them. Uh, they, they stopped the fabulous music of Prokofiev, the Romeo and Juliet theme that the players came out to, which was spellbinding. And you knew you'd made it in the team if you came out to that. The hairs on my arms are going up now, thinking about it. And the guys who were in charge changed that for techno music. And I switched off Netflix and I haven't seen anything other than the first 15 minutes of that series. <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't miss much. Um, whatever. Uh, another, just online with, I suppose, like both series you're talking about, like Chris Coleman tried, came in, like I thought Chris Coleman was brilliant in series one and came in about trying to change the mentality. And you said that whenever you were in the caretaker role at City, or sorry, at Sunderland, that there was a losing mentality. How does, how does a manager like Roy Keane or how does Peter Reid change that mentality when they're there? Well, Roy Keane came in and brought... Manchester United and the winning way, not just into our dressing room, but he made the city feel better. The whole city believed that something positive could happen when he came in. The players bought into it. And he um, he will always be remembered in Sunderland for changing that perception that everybody had. Because what had happened a couple of years previous under Howard Wilkinson, um, you know, that they broke the record for the lowest points total ever to have gone down. Uh, I'd left a year earlier, might I add. Um, <laughs> so, so they then, under Mick McCarthy, re- regrouped and got themselves up from the championship straight away, which was which was a fabulous achievement. But then of the obvious pitfalls were going to come and the lack of depth in the squad, but more so the lack of belief found its way back again because it was just too much. And so the club got relegated again. And that's when we come in and that's when, you know, I, I had it for the first four weeks and... You know, I witnessed that mentality. I witnessed the fear in the players to go out and, and try. I mean, I mean, we went to the first game we did with Carlisle in a pre-season friendly. Now, we won 1-0, I think. But these guys were being overawed by Carlisle, you know, and I could see that. And how you kind of point, how do you get them going? You know, they, they were probably curious of what I was. I was a chairman. I was a guy who used to play. I was telling them to, to raise standards. But I was also, in, in the same time, trying to... Um, do other things at the club because I, you know, I, I didn't have a huge team around me. Uh, I was trying to be an, an all-day chairman, a chief executive, and a manager at the same time. And um, and I think they they just weren't with me, didn't believe in what I was trying to say to them. And Roy came in, and they they immediately grew six inches every one of them. 
and it was incredible to see. And, and he, he set standards in that opening period, which ultimately got them, and when they got used to it all, and when they found their, their full confidence, come Christmas, they were never going to lose a game. You know, and they were always going to get there. And we won the league comfortably in the end, having, having Roy, I think we were third bottom, when Roy took over. And I will put it on record that I did win one game as manager. People sort of forget that. We beat the league leaders, West Brom, um, in my last game. And then I did the right thing, as all good chairmen should do, sacked the manager uh, when they know it's not going much further. So uh, so it was an easy decision to make. Roy was available again. And, um, you know, the, the, the role he played, the... the belief he brought into that dressing room. Now, he, he, he will say as well, you know, he got help. We bought six players for him in the first day that he got there, you know, which was the, the last day of the window. And um, I think Sky Sports, one, one fellow who outside the ground said, it's, uh, it's like laying eggs here. There's one coming every hour here at Sunderland, you know. Um, but we did that. We brought some good players in that time. Um, Stan Varga came in, you know, uh, Dwight York. There was some really good players came along. Lee Miller, in that on that day, Lord to mercy on them, you know, and all played their part. And then we, we brought other players in in the next window, and you know the push for the for promotion was on, and it, it worked really well for us. The squad were, were were great, and then when the step up came after getting promotion and winning the league, you know that was the big test, and uh, passed it with flying colours. We had a great first year, even though we we you know flirted with. With danger, um, it was just brilliant to see the club stay up, and and the club, it must be said, stayed up for ten years after that. You know, other people were there, the Sam Allardyces of this world, um, you know, kept them up, and I think it was it was an important period. You know, had we gone back down straight away at that time, you know, I think the club, you know, would be far worse off for it. I think mightn't have the fan base it has now, mightn't have you know the the passion that that exists, given the, the tough couple of years that the club have had, but. Look, you know, people often say to me, oh, you and Roy Keane fell out, but I, I can assure you, um, whatever trivial stuff, you know, that we might have been involved in um, post-Saipan, which wasn't trivial, of course, uh, it, it, was, it, was not, it, it was not right for me ever to, to remind people, you know, that, that this guy had done brilliant for Sunderland, had done brilliant for me, and that, that's what I remember. I don't, I don't care a lot about the Saipan story. That ended as far as I was concerned. And... Um, he did great for Sunderland and that will always stand the test of time. Mm. Last one for you and then I'll turn it over to Enda to take a few questions. Um, sadly, recently we, we lost Jack Charlton. I suppose everyone feels as if they know him in Ireland and even extended beyond. We all feel as if uh, you know he, he had such a big part in our lives. And I saw this video um, on YouTube about him talking about you and it's just a one-minute little segment and I wanted to, I wanted to ask how you felt from your perspective because a lot of coaches on this here how he's trying about he's talking about trying to change something in your game and you know at, the, at that level um how did he try and do that Niall Quinn is a lovely lad I met him first when he was at Arsenal and then he went on to Manchester City and then he went on to Sunderland Niall was one of those players that it took a little bit of time for him to grasp what I was after I didn't want him to play football up front. I didn't want him coming into positions where the ball was fed to his feet and then he had to do something with it or bring other people into the play. I wanted Niall to do what you call... I'd watched Belgium play and they had a guy called Kuhlemans play for them. And Kuhlemans was a, right, a big six-foot-four centre-forward and he always ran into the box from midfield and they would hit, the ball, hit him with the ball wherever he went. And he would change the direction of the ball. And that was sort of what I wanted Niall to do. And it took a while for Niall to grasp it. It took a while for Tony Cascarino to grasp it. It took a little bit of time for John Ulrich to understand what I was trying to get at. But it, it was Niall, good head of the ball. Big six foot five, I think he is. And he's, but I didn't want him to play in the sense that you're knocking balls about or you're controlling balls. Finish them off when you get a chance of a header in it, change the direction of the ball, bring other people into the game. And it took a while for Nile to get the hang of it, but when he did, he became a regular with us all the time. Like, you never hear that today, redirect the ball. Like, was this something that was unusual for you, or, or what was your perception of it? Well, well, I had started off at Arsenal under George Graham, and it was very military like, and you had to do what you had to do. And um, 
when I came to, to play with Ireland, I got picked in the squads, you know, it was, it was great. I wanted to really impress, but I was trying to do too much, you know, and to ask how did Jack Charlton manage to, to get me to change? He had to keep on to me, but he, he'd do it in a really tough, gruff way, but it was funny, you know, he'd say, you're hopeless. You know, what are you doing? You're hopeless, man. You know, <laughs> and all the other players would giggle. Now you, you do, you go through it because you do it to other players as well. And uh, it'd be your turn to get it today. And he went, you're running around like a headless chicken, man. You know, and uh, all the players would be giggling and he'd be kind of pulling you and dragging you and telling you how to do it. And, and, and it suddenly started to happen for me. And really what, what I learned to do was I learned to get into a position where the centre half who was marking me was looking over his shoulder. He, was, he didn't have me in front where he could come through me and tackle as they could in those days. The balls came to feet. But I was, I was in a much better position. Uh, I would pull on a diagonal. And that centre half then has a choice to make. Does he come with me or does he go and, and keep, you know, safety in mind around the centre of the, of, the, of the pitch or whether that's just outside the box or wherever? And I found myself when I dragged that person away, it created more space, allowed a midfielder to come in or a Kevin Phillips to come in. And then it was a matter of, you know, getting a bit of, of joy with that, understanding that was the way to go forward and then getting people to play to your strengths. And I was lucky, you know, at Ireland, at Kevin Sheedy, you could put a ball on a sixpence and a diagonal uh, on one side, Tony Galvin in the early days on the other side, and great players came. Dennis Irwin, you know, as much as he wouldn't play that ball often at Manchester United, he could put it on a sixpence for you. And I just found the ball was coming to me. It was in my domain. I was in charge of the situation, and I suddenly got better at, uh, at holding it up, bringing people into play in a more dangerous position then running 30 yards towards the halfway line, getting a touch and laying it off out to a fullback and I have another 40 yards to go in the box. And Jack used to go, because uh, the reason you do that, Niall, is you're thick. You know? <laughs> and, and it started to happen for me and then I got really good at it. And then I ended up, you know, making sure at Sunderland that players did it. And we had two wingers at Sunderland, Nicky Summerby and Alan Johnson. And they didn't have pace. They didn't beat players, but they could put a ball in. Nicky in particular. Nicky was the best crosser of a ball I have ever seen, never mind worked with. And he used to cross it from deep areas. He never used to get back past his fullback. I'd have pulled into that little area. The centre half would come and try and challenge. I'd hold him off. I could chest it down. And suddenly we were on the edge of the box. And when you're someone like Phillips then putting the ball in, it kind of made you look good, you know? So I, I kind of got the, hang, got the hang of it then. And... Um, I, I put it all down to Jack and Bobby Saxon too, who totally agreed with him, who was at Sunderland, who, who was probably my favourite coach of all. Um, and and they, they just instilled a belief in me to, to always do what you're good at on the pitch and avoid doing what you're bad at. Sounds simple. Simple game. But when you're trying to impress and you're young and you're running around the place and you want to get in this Irish team and you want to score, you know, you, you, don't, you don't get it. But then the, you get a little bit craftier and, you know, you start listening to the, to the manager and... Um, it just started to work for me and I'll be forever grateful to him because then what comes, more confidence comes for other things, you know, and then you think, you know, well, I'll let fly here from 25 yards and the odd one went in, you know, and uh, you start getting a reputation for yourself. And then they start putting two centre-halves on you and Phillips has a load of room and they knock the ball into Phillips and Phillips scores. And I started getting credit for that as well, you know. So giving me all that advice, I would probably have drifted away off down into the lower leagues but when he was doing that for me and I started it started to happen for me at Man City you know um, I, I really just took off and I really felt as if I could match it with all these great footballers you know and I had a good spell I think somebody told me recently that um, Aguero, Tevez and myself were the last three players to score 20 top flight goals in the league in, in Man City um, that's that's something that I'm proud of, but obviously I'm shouting it out here to you all. But uh, it's also something that wouldn't have happened if Jack Charlton hadn't met Niall Quinn. Brilliant, brilliant. First class. So a couple of questions coming in, actually, and uh, once Enda jumps back on, we'll get them. When you played in the World Cup, Niall, 1990 in Palermo, what was that like when you came out and seen, uh, obviously again in 94, but just when you came out and you see the Irish supporters uh, on tour, basically, what's that like? It's just incredible. It was the most extraordinary time in my life. And um, maybe we didn't appreciate it because we weren't up there enjoying ourselves the way the fans were. Uh, Tom Houlihan, the, the famous reporter, famous Irish journalist, summed it up. You know, um, I missed Italia 90 because I was over there working. 
you know um i think that's probably how we felt at the time we were locked up in a hotel for a month in many ways you know and jack was great he let us walk down the street outside and go out the hotel the the uh, Italian Carbonari didn't want us to, but we used to go off having coffee and walk away, meet the fans. We, we were a different team, you know. Right. You know now you see players getting off the bus with big headphones and don't want to look at anybody or sign an autograph. We were the opposite. We were junkies for going out there and signing autographs and getting pats on the back from people, you know. Um, we lost the run of ourselves in many ways. And, and we were kind of doing a bit of that in, in Italy, but we didn't really enjoy it the way the fans did. But when you were out there on the pitch and you kind of knew what it meant and, and scoring that goal that night in Palermo was huge for me. As um, as Jack said to me afterwards, I should be buying Hans Van Breitlen drinks for the rest of his life because he was the goalkeeper who threw the ball to me and, and I got the, the rebound. But but again, it just shows you, Pat Rice was my youth team coach at Arsenal and he drilled in me to follow in every shot. And one day it'll be worth it for you. And I actually got two days out of it. I scored on my debut against Liverpool because Bruce Grobler did the exact same as Hans Van Breitlen. And I beat Mark Lawrenson into the rebound and, and scored. And I did the same thing with, uh, with Van Breitlen's mistake against Holland that night. And it was the most important goal I ever scored because from that moment, for every game, I think I was 100% fit for till um, we played Holland again uh, to, to qualify um, for the World Cup in, 2000, in 2001 to qualify for 2002 World Cup, I kept my place in the team. So it was a kind of a 10-year goal. Brilliant. In respects, that was the value of that goal to me. So Pat Rice, <laughs> I'll never be able to thank him for that. Excellent. Ender's back in there. I'll let him take it. Hopefully he can hear me now, lads. Can you? Yeah. All right. Sorry about that. Um, Niall, um, you know, brilliant. this League of Ireland uh, streaming is obviously brilliant, right? And the uh, the other uh, things that you know Irish football has done over the years. I mean, we have the national leagues now at under 13s and 15s. So League of Ireland is is changed. I mean, it's changed since I was in Ireland and and things like that. Where where do you see the League of Ireland in a few years? And and what's your thoughts? Obviously, with the big talk, the the All Ireland League. So I mean, we're obviously progressing on many fronts. But where do you see it in the next couple of years? I mean, it's a big question. But where, where do you see it? Well, there's ambition out there, that's for sure, that it has to be in a better place than it is now. And we've begun the process of dealing with the 19 clubs that are active now in forming a participation agreement that brings you know, more to the League of Ireland. Yeah. And um, so in that, there would be um, various elements to that. So there would be, a, a, you know, that, that clubs sign up to an agreement to go on a, an improvement of facilities journey. You know where we combine and come together and, and seek help from government to uh, to upgrade our facilities. You know so that people will will be will feel better about going to the games. Or part of it. Um, you know that we that we agree. You know that the pathways that we to protect the pathways for our young players coming through those systems that you meant. I'd like to see 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, not just 13, 15, 17. Uh, I think women's football has to be protected in any sort of new League of Ireland that, that takes place. I think community involvement, I'd be very strong on that, that clubs offer more than just games on the weekend to their clubs and, sorry, to their communities. And Bohemians would be a great example of that. And, uh, you know, they, they, they have had a, a, a more than a game um, event on there over the last couple of years. And, it's really getting their players to go out and reach out to the community. They, they work, do work for the elderly in the community, for young people. They go into schools. And it's all about bringing the power of football through the community into the community, sorry, through the football club into the community. And Bohemians have gone from, I think, about 250 season ticket holders two years ago to nearly 2,000 now. And they put it down to the fact that they engage better with their community. They find sponsorship easier now. Um, the, the community feels that that's a very important part of their lives and um, they're going to go from strength to strength. When they get their refurb and they manage to get their brands together and, and get the ground right, I think they're going to be a very big club in years to come. Why? Because they've cracked it with the community. So, so there's another part of it. Um, in terms of the competition and the structures itself, that, that the structures are good, that you know whatever structure that the clubs agree on and that expertise was brought in, we've, uh, we've got UEFA to help us with that. We've got a group called Hypercube. And that leads itself, of course, to what could happen. Uh, the Kieran Lucid idea, everybody is in full agreement, is a very good idea. 
uh, particularly when I, I'm speaking now for for the League of Ireland and, and the FAI. But yeah. we have to be respectful of, of our of our neighbours and friends in in, uh, in Northern Ireland as well. And and you know that's that's just a process that we must maintain. We're in we're in engagement with. Uh, with the IFA and it's it's always a good experience and we're looking at ways that you know that, that we can make progress if it's better for both of us then I think um that will come out in in investigation and in research and if that works for us then I, I feel sure something can move us towards um what a lot of people want which is a, a successful All-Ireland League where where um you know the, the ante is up the prize money is higher um you know attendances are higher the competition is is, is stronger so there's a, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge on that, but um, you know it's it's certainly uh, it's it's been good speaking to the IFA in this in the initial instance over the last few months. Fantastic, exciting time. Was there was there many lessons um, from your younger years in the GEA that you were able to bring uh, and lean upon during your career in England? Well, funny enough, I went to Australia as well in that summer in 1983 in the month of June and. It was to play Aussie rules football for a combined uh, colleges side. I captained a group. We went to Australia for a month and we were kind of gaily footballers playing Aussie rules and we were hopeless at the start. But by the time we, we got to the end, we played full rules. We didn't play. It wasn't a, a, a you know semi rules. It was the full yeah. rules. But they brought us to Hawthorne one day, which was a professional club and a famous guy called Dipper Domenico. He was one or Dipper Domingo. He was one of the, the most famous Australian rules player ever. He was six foot four. And he took me to one side because I was the tallest. And he started saying to me, this is how you receive the ball. And he'd lean into me and push me and then go and get the ball every time. And he told me how to do it. And that was the bit that I got probably from my early career from an Aussie rules guy. And that's how I was never really, I, I, look, I was well beaten for some balls. But how I made life better for myself in later years, I perfected that art. And I'll tell you who was brilliant at it as well, Alan Shearer. Mm. Alan Shearer had this lovely bump that he would do on a defender and then come. And the defender would lose his yard, and that's all Alan Shearer needed. Now, I did it in a slightly different way, but I would have picked that up at Hawthorne Aussie Rules Club. It sounds silly, but I, I, put it, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, other things, I think where the GAA helped me was, you know, the GAA, you know, that I, I, I was 14 years of age playing in a men's junior hurling final in, in Dublin. Um, sorry, semi-final. We were beaten in the semi-final. And in those days, there wasn't a junior A, B or C. It was junior and there was about 64 teams. And we got to the last four. And I played in goal. I par our parish priest was a fullback. And <laughs> it was a great experience for a 14-year-old seeing this gentle, placid man whose flock loved him up in the church turn into this beast with a stick, you know, who did everything he could to protect me. And I would have learned from that dressing room, that, you know, that, that dressing room was one of the best experiences I had. Uh, in terms of you know the memories I have for the different characters that were in the dressing room, everybody playing their bit, playing their part, doing their bit. You know, um, the team manager, Joe Clavin was his name at the time. Paddy Croke, they were they were great people. They were mentors that you know that believed in these kids hurling around the streets of Dublin, and mixed them in with a few older men. And uh, that was that was my first great experience of GAA. I mean, I went to a minor hurling final years later, but um, to be part of a man's dressing room. And, uh, you know, to to kind of even be invited to the pub after it sounds silly now at 14 years of age, but go up to the pub and my mother and father making sure I was only <laughs> in Fanta, you know, <laughs> <laughs> trying to sneak a Smithic Shandy or something where they wouldn't be looking. But um, they were the early days that I, that I loved in sport. I played with Manitown United as well, the local soccer team, had great days with them. Um, you know, and, and, and it did, I think the GA stood to me in terms of, you know, not being easily pushed off a ball or not whinging you know, and, and pretending to be injured, you know, and as you know, in the GA back in those days, if you went down, you injured your own players would shout at you to get up, you know. Uh, so I brought a bit of that into it. And um, and that's why when I come home, there was still a bit of GA left in me. So I went and played with the local Gaelic team in Eastham. Yeah. So that was a great experience. Yeah. Little, uh, a question kind of came in, but it's more of a trivia thing as well. It, is it true the first time you ever played with Dennis Erwin, uh, was in an under-13 hurling match at Dublin versus Cork. Yeah, it was Dublin uh, against Cork Primary Schools hurling. As he says to himself, as he says to everybody who asked him, he kept me scoreless. He didn't. I scored a point and I, I actually got <laughs> two years later. I managed to get a, a programme from the next year because we played him the following year. I think Dennis was gone then. 
and it had the results and the scores from the year before. So I got to send it to him. I have it here somewhere. Well, I've reminded you now, screenshot that and get it to him. I will. That's exactly <laughs> what I'll do. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's right. We, he, Dennis was, um, he was with Finbars, the Bars, yeah. um, and he loves the GA. And, and when we used to be home for international matches, I can remember we went to Limerick one time and we went to see Cork play Clare. Clare made the breakthrough, actually, that day. And um, the Clare's forward, I can't remember his name, he broke his shoulder but still scored a point after breaking his shoulder. And uh, we were there thinking, Jesus, can you imagine that in football? They'd be lying down for an hour on the pitch and then maybe having a month off before they'd come back and <laughs> train. So, you know, there was di- they were different. But Dennis, Dennis had that background as well. And um, I think we both benefited a little bit from having it. For sure. Uh, let's go back to League of Ireland again. Um, Irish players, League of Ireland players, um, they're often undervalued uh, maybe when they're transferring to England. Um, my, my question would be, um, what do you think of that? And could it be corrected? I mean, I mean, there's some fantastic talent over the years and currently in the league that are being looked at. Um, and what's your opinion on that? Well, yeah, so I suppose if our league gets stronger and more respect, then we can get better fees for our players. And we also have to take into account the yeah. Brexit factor, which means we may very well not be sending players at 15, 16 anymore. So sure. there's a change happening and... The hope is always that, you know, that the league would be respected and that players would get good fees. I mean, I do actually hold a record as the Sunderland chairman who paid the most money a player for any player in the League of Ireland, I think, or I did, for Roy O'Donovan, uh, who was yeah. top scorer in the League of Ireland. And Roy went very close to making it Sunderland. He missed a good chance against Arsenal in the last minute. Had that gone in, his career was different. But he's forged a very good, strong career from him. He's travelled around the world to play football. But um, going back to your point, you know, I think bearing in mind where the clubs are and the hardship that they endure, that they're easy pickings for yeah. to come along and say, well, I'll give you this. That's all I'm giving you. And, and I think it, it would be great to see that change and for, for clubs to, you know, to have a, have a system in place where players know if they come, they'll get an education at, at, at a League of Ireland club. You know, if things don't work out, but if things work well, that they will be bought and uh, looked after well, because it's whether you like it or not, and, you know, if, if a club pays two million for you, they're going to look after you. If they get you for 20 grand, it's not really a problem to, to, to sort of cast you to one side. And, and I, I, just, I just hope that in time, you know, that, that we'll get more respect into this league. And I think we will. I think streaming will help that, you know. Flores goal going around the, going around the, the planet, you know, is a testament to that. So, so we've got to build up to that. I just can't expect it to happen just because it's the wrong thing and it's a bad thing that's happening. I think uh, you know this will be more about where the cl- where the clubs want to bring themselves and going on that journey, getting better facilities, great academies. You know, need it needs help from government. Government needs to understand how how important football is. I think it does. I think it sees it on the on the news morning, noon, and night. Um, you know, the, the people uh, who are in football, they, they've been well supported by government uh, to this point in in the latest crisis. But a, but a long term plan to improve facilities around the country. So that our League of Ireland can take the, the, the right stage it deserves. I think that would be an important part of um, any sort of participation agreement or plans that we're having as an association and as clubs, or indeed if there's an, an All-Ireland uh, competition to, to, to evolve. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Niall, I believe um, I believe your son looked at the US soccer scholarship route at one point. Um, yeah. I di- I'm a university coach myself. I, his video yeah. was passed along at one point, and I believe he's a goalkeeper, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've seen it. Um, what changed his mind? Um, how from, yeah. you know, what was the, the premise of, with staying home? Was there, you know, did you, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Like, was it something just, you know, he just wanted to stay home? Or, because I mean, obviously, it's, it's a different route. Yeah, no, we were delighted and, and everything was in good shape. Uh, he was going to Ohio and we were thrilled. He was going to get his education, yeah. he was going to work hard, and it was very exciting. And then the opportunity came for him to join Berry, ah. which looked a good idea because they were short on goalkeepers. They didn't have much money and he was guaranteed maybe a place or he was certainly going to be number two. And it was a great opportunity for him to get on the ladder in England. And so he took that, but, you know, literally six weeks, eight weeks later, uh, Berry ran into difficulties and. Um, you know, the, the club lost its place in the league and Mikey had missed, passed up his chance to go to America. So he just got himself back to college now and he uh, he's really committed. He trains hard and um, he's uh, he's now he, he's doing psychology in DCU and he's also uh, bringing 
goalkeeping into his uh, semester this year. He's he's got a, a presence online. Now he's going to kill me because I forget the name of it, but I think it's the goalkeeper psychologist. I'll, uh, I'll 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 get it up here now so that he doesn't kill me um, while we're while we're training. But he's got lots of followers, and he's really intent on uh, on on helping goalkeepers with the mental side of their approach. You know. Um, yeah, I have one of them that needs a bit of that. <laughs> I, I can't actually. I'll, I'll be too long trying to get it. But he—he's he, he, a caring guy, and I think he regrets it at times. You know, it's just the way things happened. He—he he took a, a punt at the last minute to go and uh, be a pro footballer in the UK at, at a low level, of course, in, in, the, in the bottom league. But um, uh, it didn't work out for him. You know. I remember seeing his video. He uh, was good, good player. I think I knew he was going to Ohio, so I was like, ah. I'll just back off him. Off camera, we might send him over to you. You never know. You you, you get us. And if you feed him and look after him, that'd be great. Oh, yeah. Then we we can arrange something. Um, Kind of staying on that topic, um, you know, the under-19s is kind of the last um, stage before the the first division and the Premier Division. Uh, I I played in the old Aircom under-21 league way, way back. And... uh, you know, I think there's a, a big gap right now, right? That's why we're seeing a lot of Irish lads in the States, right? They're finishing at U19. If they don't get signed for Sligo or Shelburne or Galway, then they're, they're, they're coming over to the state, uh, to the States. Um, what do you think of that route? I mean, we just talked about with your son. Do you think that's a good option? And then, you know, full circle, right? If kids are coming over, League of Ireland clubs is a massive opportunity to recruit them back home, mm-hmm. maybe to do a Masters and things like that. You know, what's your... What's your thought yeah. process of something like that, Niall? Well, in, in an ideal world, we would have a presence in, in the US. We would uh, come over and play matches. Our clubs would, would take part in competition. Yeah. And uh, I, I bring you back to the time of Doc O'Neill, Dr. Tony O'Neill, who was a visionary who you know saw that young players weren't going to get what they wanted from life just because they were good footballers by getting over to England on a boat at 15 or 16 and coming back pretty much broken up at, at 18, 19. And he, he set away, you know, a whole raft of footballers to make sure they got their education in America. And some people I meet now, and they thank him to this day for the choice that they made. So that was heavy in my mind when uh, when Mikey was thinking going to Ohio, and, and I, I knew it'd be good for him rather than being here. But I, I do believe we have to um, we have to find better ways of keeping our players at home. And again, it goes back to the, the full, you just can't say keep them at home. You've got to get everything right. You've got to get the facilities right, the investment right. You've got to get the sponsorship right and get the, get the money in so that the players understand that there could be a fruitful existence for them here as well as, you know, maybe a, a proper education. If they can't do that, then I, I you know, I see how America is, is an obvious attraction. Um, and I would never object to a player doing that to fulfill his education as well because they do it right there, as you know, you've been through it. Um, just because you're a good footballer doesn't mean you're you're going to get where you want to be in football. You have to do your grades to get there. And I think yeah. it's a fabulous system and one that we 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 do the exact opposite of in our country. So um yeah, we have a lot to learn there. I agree. Yeah. And then, you know, even if kids do go, I think there's a you know, I think there is a gap where kids could go back. I mean, there's just tons of ways for these kids to, that want to go home, you know. Well, well, there is. And then you've got clubs like I know St. Pat's brought some players through, um, you know, a, a university placing in Maynooth. Yeah. And the conflicts run out and they joined their rivals, you know. So so you St. Pat's would say to you, well, look, we're, we're setting them up, giving them a great education. And they let the contract run out and, and use the Bosman ruling. And, and, you know, it doesn't encourage clubs, even though Pat's still do. And um, it kind of... It, it, there's a, there's a, a deeper story there than probably you and I are discussing, but it would be lovely if, um, if again, as part of, of government assistance, football and education in the country, that, that you know players knew there was a pathway for them nationally uh, and that they didn't have to go to the States. But then again, as you say, to come back, um, you know, I think one or two players have done that and come back to League of Ireland. But uh, it's it's not, you know, um, I suppose, in the, in the forefront of clubs' minds at this point. Yeah, no, for sure. L- last question for me, Niall, and I'll turn you over to Johnny. Um, what was the biggest derby game uh, you played in and why? Well, I played Arsenal Spurs game as a young kid. That was big and um, had some rare battles with Graeme Roberts, Richard Goff, uh, players of, of that calibre. They were, they were tough out. Um, amazing crowd, the noise, the whole thing. It was so different to the other matches I played. 
I then went up to Man City and did the Man, U, Man, Man, United, Man United Man City derby and never won one, which makes me not like it that much. I drew plenty of them, scored in plenty of them. But, you know, we were 3-1 up in injury time one year and lost, I'm sorry, drew 3-3. Um, so, so I, you know, I don't have great memories just because of results. Yeah. I, I remember coming off the pitch at that point when, when United had come back in injury time and scored the two goals. And I'll never forget the United fans singing, Blue Moon, Blue Moon, you started singing too soon. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it stayed with me. And, and ever since then, I have a dislike of Manchester United that I find <laughs> hard to leave to one side when I'm trying to do commentary. But, um, but that's it. It either gets you or it doesn't. And, and United had the upper hand. Alex Ferguson took that team on a journey then. Uh, we got left behind. So, um, so that, that derby was what it was. But where I, where I saw it, what it meant more ahead, if you like, for population was, you know, the Newcastle-Sunderland derby. You know, three or 400,000 people in Sunderland, 50,000 at the match, every household virtually represented by one person, if not two. Um, it, just extraordinary stuff, what it, what it meant in the whole fabric of, of the city, how they would, you know, ring in work sick on the Monday rather than face their, their colleagues from Newcastle. The stuff they got up to, 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 you know, ram it down fans' necks, the, the grown men turning into children, you know, it was just <laughs> incredible. And to do that in their ground in St. James's Park, you know, one year we had 800 fans at the match. Hullet had his team primed to win the Champions League. Sexy football, if you remember, was the, um, yeah. the byword. And um, good old Sunderland came up and uh, turned them, them over. And Kevin and I both scored that night. It was monsoon rain. It was almost called off but it was warm rain because it was in the in the end of august start of september i think and um that was an incredible game to play in and i knew all about it then um a year later we did the same thing and to get the winner a year later was probably the most special goal i think in my club career that, that i can remember and what it meant and to this day you know i'd be in the uk or whatever and in london even and if someone would come up to me and they'd always talk about that goal i scored against newcastle so it, um, it, it was a big help to me. Brilliant. Well, listen, uh, I'm going to pass you over to Johnny. Uh, Niall, thanks very much for your time and uh, appreciate mm-hmm. everything you're doing for football. And I mean, a lot of a lot of people are enjoying this League of Ireland stream. And so uh, thanks. Yeah, for good. No, thanks for bringing it up. And hopefully uh, everybody agrees that we've, we've com- priced it very competitively. You know, I think we don't want to break people's um, hearts with asking for too much money. We just want people yeah. to see see the action. So, so thanks for that plug, and uh, hopefully, yeah. one of you will come on. Hopefully, my beloved Go United will be in the Premier Division next year as well. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, you know, we, we were all here yesterday. We got the news that um, that Johnny Glynn's daughter was one of the daughters. Yeah, in you read that. I'm, I'm yeah, very relief. The whole football family in Ireland when we heard she was safe. Johnny is a top man, a class act, as you know. Top man, Johnny. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Niall. Appreciate it. You too, Yeah, that was a great good news story. Glad they were all safe. Amazing. Yeah. Niall, just to finish out, we appreciate your time. Um, you've been on longer than we, we, we uh, agreed to, but That's we appreciate fault. that very much. <laughs> well, it's your fault for asking me. <laughs> but we will get you again, believe me. <laughs> yes, well, listen, it was great. Thanks thanks very much. Thanks for your interest. Keep it going out there. And um, great to be one last thing we always ask our guests. One last thing is, what advice would a Niall Quinn give a young Niall Quinn today? Um, Jesus, that's a, that's a great question. My mother tried it and I didn't listen. Get your education. Um, complete your education would be the, the obvious one. Um, don't marry the first woman you meet. <laughs> um, not that I did, but uh, maybe others did in the past. Um, no, that's 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 I, I shouldn't really say that. Uh, I suppose you know to try and enjoy it and treat it as an adventure as opposed to a chore. You know, um, I think some people it, it succumbs them the pressure. I have to deliver. Everybody at home is relying on me. I think you got to leave that back. You know, at home and back on your career, and you you got to be a di- you have to have a different mindset. And one of the one of the little bits of advice that I've given to people. On game days, people ask me about matches, for instance, and how they approach big matches. At the same stage in my career, when Jack had taught me how to play better and do the right things and had the impact on the game that I was having, I also developed within my own, no no, no sports psychologist told me this or sports science uh, people, but I, I visualized myself playing in the match that I played the best in that year. 
or the year before. And even if we were playing Spurs, but we had done great against Charlton Athletic, that day I was playing against Charlton. The people I were marking were the Charlton centre-halves that I destroyed and murdered. And I lost all inhibition, all fear of not doing well. And I knew every game I was going to play, I was going to do well. So much so that I was playing far better football at 35 than 25. And uh, I, I just, I think sometimes we can build barriers up against ourselves. And if I could help young players to overcome them, and then that's the best advice I think I could give. Excellent. Excellent. Loyal, gentlemen, appreciate your time. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yes, well, well done. I look you up when, I, when, when all the world goes back to normal. I'll come out and see you at some stage. Love that. Oh, man. Folks, Class. tune in to Watch League of Ireland. Current game on live right now is Dundalk versus Waterford. Later on tonight, Cork and Sligo. However, I think we'll be all watching Barcelona and Bayern Munich. But, uh, well, yeah, you're right. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Niall. Thanks, everyone. See you, Niall. Come on.